Thank you. And good morning. Oh, great to be with you. Hot, but great. And uh, yeah, we're going to be in Exodus again this morning. Unsurprisingly, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 12. And if you have a Bible and can turn to Exodus 12, that'd be great. But if you're new, here is what has happened so far. Um, because otherwise this story will seem a little, little strange. So we're looking at a, doing a series, the strap line, we've even got it on the banner and the slides. He draws us out to draw us in. That's how we're summarizing the book. And we are still in the bit where God is basically drawing us out, drawing Israel out of slavery. And what's happened so far is that Israel have been in Egypt for 400 years. They've been oppressed and enslaved and crushed and ruthlessly driven down. But God has heard their cry and their prayers and he's remembered his covenant to rescue them. And so he said, I'm going to get you out. That was week one. And then in week two, God called to Moses from the burning bush that we already heard that that phrase, I am that I am, through the worship this morning, which is great. But God calls to Moses from the burning bush. He reveals his name, and then he sends him to Pharaoh, and that was week two. And then week three, we heard from Steve about the period of the plagues, where these sort of ten plagues come down upon Egypt, and that's the, that's the fun, I say the fun bit. It's, the sort of, it's kind of dark, but it's kind of fun as well, at a ch- children's Bible sort of way. It's the bit of the story that we know. It's the bit my son loves. And occasionally repeats to complete strangers. This happened. Um, yeah, he 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 just he likes angry faces in kids' Bible. So he was he just confronted a child on the swings uh, a short while back. Just and went just went. No, I do not know your God. And but just quoting straight from. And we're like, oh no. And he does it with. He likes Pharaoh and he likes Herod as well. And <laughs> some random man was just walking down past the Tesco Express near our house. And he just was out, didn't even, hadn't done anything. And Zeke just looks up at him and he goes, go and find the boy. I will be the only king of the Jews. And <laughs> just comes out like that. And so it's this, but the, the, the blood and thunder bit is the Pharaoh plagues bit. It's the children's Bible bit. It's the bit that we know, the bit we, it's sort of quite dramatic and exciting. But of course, it's all headed for the 10th plague, which is what we saw last week, where God provides a substitute for them in the, the Passover lamb and allows Israel, if they have the blood of the lamb over their door, they will escape and be delivered, and the Egyptians will not. And the final plague comes, the death of the firstborn. And that's where we were last week. And then this week, we are going to be in the bit immediately after that, continuing in the same chapter. And this is the bit of the story, which is actually the Exodus itself, as in the whole series is called Exodus, the book. But the bit when they actually get out is this week, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 12. They've been waiting for 400 years for this this bit when they finally leave and finally become, in that sense, free people. But in the passage we're going to read, something very strange happens that makes us reconsider the story we have been reading for the previous four weeks. And because it, what it does is it makes us consider for a moment, am I who I thought I was in this story? Or am I actually someone else? If you are anything like me, you may find yourself identifying with particular characters in movies or stories you read, and sometimes you even debate with your friends, which one of these characters am I? Have you done that? You go where you go, you know, in my generation it was, which one of the friends are you? Everyone was going to be one of the six friends, and everyone was like, oh, well, I think I'm him, or I think I'm her. You might have done it with, um, perish the thought, Star Wars, you know, am I, am I Luke, or Obi-Wan, or my Han, or my Leia, or Yoda, or Chewie? I don't know, but, uh, you're Chewie. <laughs> That, I must admit, I did not expect a whoop for that particular option. Um, but that's, and that's what happens. People do that. They identify with individual characters. And then in, sometimes, have you noticed in a really good story, sometimes things happen that make you reconsider which character you are. That you had started off in the story thinking, oh, I'm this person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, no, I'm actually this person. Have you ever, 
I mean, the most powerful story in history that does that is the parable of the lost sons. Where Jesus tells this story and you go, yeah, yeah, I'm a bit like that lost son. Yeah, yeah, I, I, maybe I, I left God in sin and then I've come back to, oh no, maybe I'm the older son. Maybe I'm the older brother who gets a bit sulky and grumpy about this. Oh no. And a good story often has the power to do that. And this story does this. This story, which we have been reading until now, just assuming, I think, that we are Israel, we're the slaves, we're the oppressed people, suddenly something happens that makes us think, hang on, have I been misreading this slightly, and am I actually someone else? And we're going to see that the story is a little bit more complicated than it first appears, and we're going to read. So Exodus chapter 12, beginning at verse 33, and as we read this, just look for the three things that Israel take with them. That's how we're going to look at this story. There are three things Israel take with them, and they're going to give us a lot of insight into the way that God relates to his people. And actually, a lot, we'll understand new things about the gospel, I think, and about the church from looking at this. But Exodus chapter 12, verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they'd asked the Egyptians for silver and for gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and couldn't wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations." And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that's bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger that's a non-Israelite, shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. This is the word of God. Israel leaves Egypt in the middle of the night. And as they leave, they take three things with them. I don't know if you noticed them. If you were looking out for that as I read it, you may well have been surprised to hear what they were. And each one of the three of them has something very important to tell us about the nature of the people of God. They brought with them money, which represents the favor of God in this story. They brought with them a meal, which represents the freedom of God in this story, and they brought with them a multitude, a mixed multitude, which represents the family of God in this story. And all three of those things are actually very important in understanding who the people of God are and what God has done for us in saving us. Now, the first one's actually kind of obvious why, that would, why money would mean favor in this story. 
Israel leaves Egypt with money. You probably noticed that as you were reading through it. They turned to Egypt and said, will you give us the gold and silver and the jewelry and the clothing? And Egypt said, yeah, anything to get you guys out of here and stop these crazy plagues that keep falling out of the sky to kill us. Verses 35 to 36. They had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now usually, when enslaved people find freedom, they are let go begrudgingly. Right? Historically speaking, that's what normally happens. Many of us in the room will know the, the 40 acres and a mule story. Right? It's all right. We will, em- we will emancipate the slaves in North America, and we will give you all some land to kind of pay you back for all the things that we have made you do. Actually, no, we won't. We won't give you that at all. We'll say we will, but we won't. That's what usually happens. It, at best, people will make a promise they then don't follow through on. So, I mean, when, the, when the Jews were liberated from the camps in, in the 1940s, at the end of the Second World War, they were, the Germans did not say, hey, we're really sorry for what we've done. Here's loads and loads. They didn't give reparations, right? That usually doesn't happen because usually the person who's, be, who's letting people go is doing so angrily and doesn't want to give them anything. My grandpa was in a POW camp, a prisoner of war camp in the, in the Second World War. He was captured by the Japanese. He was there for three and a half years and was, that's the closest thing, I suppose, to slavery that there has been in my family. Certainly, it's terrible, terrible conditions. When I knew him, he was a man of 16 stone. He was eight and a half stone when he left the camp. Uh, he was, it was not an easy time. But at the end of that time, there was nobody saying, oh, by the way, we, we should now bless you and give to you to make up for what you've done. That, that is not what slave owners or people who have captives generally do. And yet in this story, Israel leaves not just with a little bit of hardware that they've managed to steal, but with an abundance of gold and silver and jewelry and fine clothes, having plundered the Egyptians. And that proves, at least in the eyes of the writer, that proves that the Lord has given them favor. He has blessed them. He said, I was not, I was not deaf to your suffering. I saw what you went through. This is not because the Egyptians suddenly went, oh, gosh, what terrible people we've been. Oh, let us give you payment for the last 400 years of no, of no wages. This is because the Lord God has given favor to these people. And the text, this is serious reparations. The text says, this comes through the favor of God. The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And so the favor of God comes and it transforms curse into blessing. And it transforms desolation into abundance. That's what God does. Now some of us on hearing that, and say some of us, certainly a lot of Christians on hearing that, would say, there you go. Money shows favor, and therefore when God saves us, he promises us that he will also favor us with financial blessing. Surely that's what this story proves. But I think before we jump to that conclusion, we need to bear a couple of other things in mind in this story. One of them is, yes, of course, they were given an abundance of gold, silver, jewelry, and clothes, But the gold and silver and jewelry are going to be used in just a few chapters' time to build the tabernacle. So if you follow the story through and say, what did they do with all this stuff? Like, were they wandering around for 40 years in the desert? Oh, God, this gold's extremely heavy. Couldn't he have given us something lighter? That's not what they did, of course, because very soon after this, within a few weeks, God will give instructions to the people of God and say, what I want you to do is I want you to hammer, get fine goldsmiths, silversmiths, jewelers. I want you to get men of great skill and I want them to turn this into something very beautiful, a beautifully furnished house for God. So if you're going to track the analogy through, 
then of course favor in this story is given to give them abundance, but then that they might turn that abundance into the house of God. So we've got to be careful not to read it as if that means it's all for them. It's not. The second thing we've got to bear in mind is that the apostles in the New Testament talk all the time about the favor of God, but they don't talk about it coming with financial blessing at all. In fact, they often talk about it coming with less than they started with. The blessings that they pile up when Paul or Peter start listing the favor of God is they start saying, Blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then they list a whole lot of spiritual, not material blessings. They start saying he has chosen us in him. He's loved us from before the foundation of the world. He's adopted us. He's redeemed us. He's given us his spirit, given us this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fail. Kept in heaven for you. In other words, the way the apostles read the favor of God now is to say that may or may not come with money. And in our experience as apostles, it usually hasn't. In fact, it's often come with some beatings. But there is a spiritual blessing that far outweighs it that we are both enjoying now and one day going to inherit forever. And that far outweighs anything we could have got from money. And the third thing to bear in mind is that in Exodus, God shows his people, he shows his favor by giving his people, starting with nothing, and then taking from other people so they end up with lots. Whereas in the New Testament, what happens is God shows his favor by taking a group of people who actually start with a lot, and start with possessions and land, and then they give it all away to the people around them rather than taking it from them. And they become a means not of plundering, but of blessing the people in the community around them. So if you make financial prosperity central to the gospel on the basis of this story or many other stories is kind of to miss the point of the story. It's actually to make the gospel too small. Because the gospel is bigger than the gold and silver that came. Of course, the gold and silver came here to symbolize favor, but the favor of God shown now is on a far larger canvas than that. It's more glorious than that. And to make the gospel simply about money is to miss the point of it. Gold and silver are nothing compared to freedom from sin and slavery and death. And it's like that moment that Peter has with the guy who's begging who can't walk. And God says, I want money, I want money. He goes, I don't have any money, but I've got something I'm sure you're going to love. Get up and walk in the name of Jesus. That's the way that the, the gospel transcends some of the categories that the Old Testament would work with. Of course they were favored then with money. That's the way you would show favor if you'd been a slave for 400 years. But now there is something greater and higher that has been given in the name of Jesus. Get up, rise, be free. And so we are. So there is, but they, do, they leave Egypt with money, and we've got to see that and understand that in this story, it represents the favor of God. The second thing they leave Egypt with is a meal, and this one is probably weirder still, is weirder because when you're reading the story, it's not what you would expect people to spend a lot of time talking about if they just got out of slavery, right? It's quite random. If you watch an escape movie, and I don't, again, I don't want to spoil the ending, but as in, you know, like The Great Escape or Escape to Victory or The Shawshank Redemption... If at the end of the movie, as Tim Robbins is emerging from that horrible sewage pipe and stepping out into freedom and standing like this, there's suddenly an extended discussion about the bread and cheese that he's about to eat, you and I would say, what is the director doing in this movie? That is not where I was thinking this story was going. And yet, that's, you probably noticed, that's just what happened in this story. Israel has got out of slavery for 400 years. They've emerged from the sewage pipe of slavery. And now, make sure you take this food. Have you got dough? Have you got a provision bowl that's going to be carried on your shoulders? And you and I are thinking, what on earth is this? Because the story's placing a lot of focus on the meal that you and I probably would think, what on earth are they doing that for? Verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound in their clothes on their shoulders. 
39. They baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they brought out of Egypt. You think, why are we going on about this? What is the meal there for? Verse 46. The Passover shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. Just keeps going on with instructions about eating. And for all that Charles was saying earlier about, we love celebrating through eating, you and I are thinking, yeah, but not this much. Surely this is not the highlight of the story. The Passover meal is incredibly significant for Israel because meals in biblical culture, and actually in some cultures today, many cultures really, tell stories. Meals tell stories. So if you're from the Middle East, you may well eat chalva at funerals. You may come from a country where that's common. Where Chava denotes, it's, it effectively reflects upon the significance of the sadness and loss of death. It is a, if you like, um, a food that you eat to symbolize something. It tells a story in that sense. If, you know, have a, if you're American or if you have American friends, I've, we've got a very close American friend in our family who on a couple of occasions we've been able to eat Thanksgiving with as a family. And it's interesting, we, you do this with Americans who take, some of them take Thanksgiving very seriously. It's not just a, a jamboree and they will sit around the table holding hands and they will all give thanks for things. One at a time, from the youngest to the oldest and they will sometimes tell stories and thank God for things that he's done for perhaps their, their nation, but often about what he's done for them that year. And it can be very moving. It's not just a turkey. It's a turkey that symbolizes a whole story that affects hundreds of millions of people. Right? Now, we don't really have very much of that in my kind of British culture. We do have some. It was my daughter's birthday the other day. There is a particular kind of cake that we generally eat for birthdays. And you have a birthday cake, that tells a story. And some of us will remember birthday cakes that we had when we were younger. And there was a particular, I remember when I was five, I had a car-like cake and was nine, I had a mountain climbing cake because it's what you're into at the time. And the meal can kind of tell a story. If you walk into a room, you don't know what's going on and people are serving champagne, you think, oh, this is a posh person's celebration. <laughs> yeah? If you come into a room and everyone's serving Prosecco, you think, oh, it's a middle-class person's <laughs> celebration. Right? But, that, but the, actually, there are some foodstuffs, foods and drinks, that communicate things, that tell stories. And in the Bible, that's a much bigger deal than it is in contemporary British culture. And so they, they eat this meal to remind themselves, because God told them to, of what God has done for them so that they never, ever forget it. Right? I want, God says, I want you to eat lamb because a lamb was killed as a substitute for your family so that you could be free. I want you to eat it with bitter herbs. Because your slavery was bitter. Right? I don't want you to forget that. Some of us got, we've got that in our history, haven't we? I, need, I don't want to make light of that. That is actually part of my story. It's bitter. I want you to eat the bread unleavened. Because there was such a hurry that night that you didn't have time for the dough to rise. You had to run in the middle of the night. So I want you to eat it with unleavened bread. You can imagine God saying to Israel, this is a freedom meal and I want you to eat it in remembrance of me. And that's why the Lord's Supper has always been so central to Christian worship. Because it's a freedom meal. Because Jesus sat down to eat a Passover meal with his friends. And he told them that the bread and the wine they were having was even more than it was about the Exodus. It was actually about him. It was actually about the way that he was... He said, this bread doesn't just redeem you from Egypt... It's not just an unleavened loaf that reminds you of that. This bread is my body and it's going to be broken for you so you can find freedom as well. This cup doesn't just remind you of forgiveness and freedom from Egypt. This cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you and not just for you but for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
Drink it in remembrance of me. This meal represents the freedom of God. Not only from Egypt, but from sin and from slavery and from death and from the devil. And as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back. So this is a freedom meal. And they take with them money, representing the favor of God. They take with them a meal, representing the freedom of God. And then, if you like, this is my favorite bit. They leave Israel, they leave Egypt with a multitude, a mixed multitude, which represents the family of God. Look at verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Go forward to verse 48. If a stranger shall sojourn with you, a stranger is a non-Jew in this setting, shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it, he shall be as a native of the land. Now this is what I meant at the beginning of the message when I said that things are more complicated than they look when you think, oh, I'm like the Israelites. Unless you are a Jewish person here today, and some of us may be, but most of us are Gentiles, and as we read this story, we instinctively read the Exodus story as if we are Israel. We are the victims, the innocent victims, whose time of vindication has finally come. But in many ways, as I read this bit of the story, I start to realize, hang on a second, in many ways, I am the Gentile in this story. I am Egypt. I am an Egyptian in this story who is both a slave of Pharaoh, which the Egyptians are, but also an oppressor myself, a sinner myself. And I don't just need freedom, although I do. I need forgiveness as well. And actually what I'm looking at, I'm, I'm this Egyptian in this story, looking around at the Jews leaving, having seen these mighty signs and wonders in the sky and the Passover, and I'm thinking, hang on a second, I think Israel's God might be the real one, and I've been worshipping false gods, and I've been enslaved to them my whole life, and I don't want to do that. And I've actually been sinning against others as well, and I want to turn my life around, and I want to repent of all the things I've done. Maybe if I leave with Israel, Israel's God might show mercy on me, and I'm going to throw myself at his feet and beg him to take me. And then I read this story, and waves of relief and gratitude and wonder come crashing over me, because when Israel leaves Egypt, there is a mixed multitude. That is, a multitude of Israelites and Egyptians and probably other nations as well. They are Jew and Gentile, they are male and female, they are slave and free, barbarian, Scythian, and I'm there too. And I'm not descended from Abraham, right? Personally, my biological, you go, my great, 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 great grandfather was not Abraham in the flesh, it wasn't. But if I switch sides, if I turn my life around, if I repent, I switch sides, I get to join the people of God and I get freedom as well on the same terms that they do. And I get treated like a native of the land. I get regarded with the same favor that they have, even though they've had 400 years of suffering and I haven't, and they've got a thousand years of promises and I haven't. I've lived in Egypt my whole life, but I get to travel with the people of Israel on the way to the promised land. Now, I get to join the family of God. In those days, of course, you did it through circumcision. Nowadays, you do it through baptism. But the point is, you enter the people of God, and you get the same privileges they have, even though that's not part of your biological story. And I get to join it simply on the basis of faith without having done anything to contribute towards it. And when I arrive, I will share in their inheritance, as many of these people did. You read the story of Joshua Judges, you'll think, there's all sorts of non-Jews who get given land. That's me! And I read through and I think, that's my story. I get to share their inheritance simply on the basis of faith when they cross the Jordan. People get ready. There is a train to Jordan. You don't need no baggage. You just get on board. All you need is faith. 
open the doors and board them. You don't need no ticket. You just thank the Lord. That's the basis on which you and I are admitted. Or as somebody said somewhere, everyone is invited. And that's what this story shows me, that this story, as much as it's a beautiful story of faithfulness to a particular people, it actually is a massive expansion of the covenant promises of God as the mixed multitude, people like me and Charles and Steve Semple and and all of you, we get in on the basis of faith, even though we are not from this family at all. Praise be to God. So there is a mixed multitude representing the family of God. In that sense, what I think we have in Exodus 12 is a very short theology of the church. In some ways, that's what I think Exodus 12 is and can be to us. God's people leave Egypt with their desolation turned into abundance, which shows that God favors them. And God's people leave Egypt with a meal, which we are to celebrate frequently, which speaks to us of the freedom of God. And God's people leave Egypt with a mixed multitude of Gentiles like you and me, who are included by grace on the basis of faith into Israel to form a family of God. How? How do, what makes that possible? The true and better Passover lamb, who we read about last week, who has been sacrificed for us, Jesus who is called the Christ. Look at the tiny phrase in verse 46, which you may not have noticed when we read it the first time. Describing the Passover lamb. And you shall not break any of its bones. And then look at what the eyewitnesses said when Jesus died for the sins of the world in John 19. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. When you're crucified, you need your legs to keep breathing. If the legs, aren't, legs are broken, you, you die very quickly. They asked Pilate that the legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break any of his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And because he has, we have become Exodus people along with Israel. We have been blessed with the favor of God. We have been liberated into the freedom of God. And we have been adopted into the family of God. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this astonishing story of freedom that we find ourselves brought into through the work of Jesus Christ, Lord. We thank you for freedom from captivity, and we thank you for forgiveness for the things we've done that have held others captive as well. We thank you for the meal that we get to remember you by and experience this over and over again. We thank you for the multitude, the diversity, the international flavor of this wonderful family you've you've brought us into. And most of all, we thank you for the Passover lamb himself, Jesus, the one whose, whose bones were not broken and yet who died and his blood purchased people for for God from every nation. We are so thankful for him and we praise you. Amen. Amen. Amen.